You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show on 710-KURV. Here's Sergio. On behalf of the uh, Texas Oregon uh, Donors Association, Mark Scotch is joining me right now. It was Living Donor Day, I think it was yesterday, and I appreciate them turning around real quick and, and sending me Mark. Mark, where are you calling me from? Uh, right now I am in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Oui, Baton Rouge. <laughs> Man, yeah. gr- growing up in Houston, close enough to Louisiana, that's where I developed my love of gumbo and some of the Louisiana oh. seafood up there. My goodness. All right. Well, Mark, Living Donor uh, Day, what was, why was that special for you, Mark? Tell me your story. Well, I live in Wisconsin, actually. Okay. And about three years ago, about this time of the year, my wife and I had recently retired. We're on our way to Texas, actually with our travel trader and we stopped at a little town called Natchitoches, Louisiana for the night. Ended up going to a microbrewery and meeting a guy named Hugh Smith. Had a beer, talked with him for a little while. He got up to leave and I said, where are you going? <laughs> I kind of teasing him a little bit. And after a little while, he told me he had to go home and go on dialysis. He went on dialysis every night for 10 hours at home and wow. his crazy. kidneys had failed. Yeah, that was his life, and uh, he was working full-time, though, and wow. he said, I'm kind of looking for a kidney, <laughs> and my, my sister-in-law had donated 12 years previous to that, so I knew you could donate a kidney. I had never asked her one question, was never curious about it, never even interested, and I said, heck, I'll give you one of mine, and, oh. and eventually I did donate a kidney, and Hugh got a kidney. And he's been off dialysis now for two how, years. How many, how many beers had you <laughs> had you swigged already when you got into? Oh, I love you, man. I'll give you a kidney. <laughs> were, were you right yeah. in your mind when you made that decision? You made that promise. Well, that, that's kind of a joke. No, I knew what I was doing. I was kind of like, yeah, two guys walk into a bar, one guy walks out without a kidney. Wow, that's well, that's wonderful. But you still needed to go through right certain blood type verification and all those things or is kidney don or is a kidney donation a lot simpler than what I'm making it out to be? Well, it is simple, but in our case I'm with I live in Wisconsin. He was in Louisiana. And yes, I thought you had to match up and all this kind of stuff. He was registered at a transplant facility in Shreveport. I started talking to him. They started telling me how many times I'd have to come down to get this done, get tested and I was, wow, this is amazing. And then I learned that there's an organization called the National Kidney Registry. And they have a network of 103 hospitals across the United States. And what it allowed me to do was to get evaluated and donate my kidney in Madison, Wisconsin, 90 miles from my home. Wow. And they have this thing called a voucher program. It's pretty new. It's only a few years old. I gave you this voucher, and that gave him priority on the NKR wait list. Hmm. The only thing he had to do was to get registered in Jackson, Mississippi. So I donated a kidney in Madison. My kidney in the 103 hospitals was the best match with somebody in New York. And when Hugh was ready, five months after I donated, he got a kidney that came from Southern California. I see. So, okay. Yeah, it's it's amazing system, and that's why I, well, during my research, I read that 13 people die in this country every day waiting for a kidney. Wow, and that's amazing. I just knew, I just, my wife and I were stunned that we didn't know that, 
But then I started to ride my bicycle. So I, I always like to ride bicycle. I'm a mountain biker. So the reason why I'm in Baton Rouge, I just finished yesterday with a ride from Lubbock, Texas to Baton Rouge, 1,500 miles. Took me 30 days, and we just create awareness as much as we can that there's a need, that there's ways to donate, and that I demonstrate that I can, you know, a person can ride, can donate a kidney and live a normal life. What did your wife say when you promised that kidney? to this man you just barely had met there at Natchitoches, Louisiana at that bar, drinking a beer. Well, she kind of did a quick double take, but <laughs> our story is a little deeper than that. Okay. A little over 40 years ago, our uh, a little over 40 years ago, our first son died at 15 months old, and we had never had the opportunity to donate his organs, and oh, man. it always bothered my wife a little bit, and as crazy as this sounds, as soon as this guy standing in front of me told me, he needed an organ. Somehow that memory also kicked in and helped me make that decision to say yes. And she did not bat an eye because she knew exactly where I was coming from. Okay, and it was based on what you learned, which is a, like a voucher system. You promised to donate a kidney. You, you vouchered on his behalf. He got a little paper slip. Your kidney, perfect match for somebody, up. you said, up in New York or something like that. And then... Yep brought him up to the top of the list and as soon as they found a match for him he found one in california and got his got his kidney has, has he kept in touch with you because obviously you you were a lifesaver for him oh yeah we talk all the time he's like a brother and uh we he was a former jockey he um him and you know the jockeys they would take ibuprofen for all the aches and pains so he actually um damaged his own kidneys by aye, accident but yeah aye. we we talk all the time my guest right now, Mark Scotch, with just an amazing story as a living donor. And I brought him on the show. And I thank the folks at the uh, Texas Organ um, Donation Organization that sent Mark my way for this amazing story. It was Living Donor Day this week. And, yes, you too could, you know, you get in a situation like that. For Mark, it was a complete stranger. But I, I suspect that here in South Texas, because of diabetes and the ravages of that, Y'all might be facing a situation where maybe you donate a kidney for a loved one or a friend. So take me through the experience. How did your life change, your diet, exercise, I don't know, your pee? <laughs> How did it change <laughs> as a result of, of giving away one of your good kidneys? Well, that's the great thing. As a donor, you have to be almost in perfect health, and your kidney function has to be very good, obviously. So my life has not changed one bit. That's why I ride my bicycle to demonstrate that you don't really change your life. Um, really? The doctors donor, didn't tell you, drink more water the entire day, keep everything, keep the filter clean, nothing like that? Well, yes, there is that. You, you have to stay hydrated, but I haven't changed my diet per se or my lifestyle. That's amazing. All right, my brother. Why? Yep. Anything else you, you want us to, to know about this amazing story of yours and try to encourage more family members to well, maybe donate a kidney? Yeah, a couple of things. Just that there is a need. Like I said, 13 people die every day waiting for a kidney, and I just couldn't believe that. The deceased membership, you know, we all, a lot of us have our driver's license set up to where if we die, something, you know, something happens, or organs can be used. But uh, if you want to learn more, you can go to my website. I have a website called markscotch.com, and I've got a Facebook page called the Oregon, O-R-G-A-N, like kidney, the Oregon Trail. 
and we try to just educate people that there's a need and that people can donate and live a normal life afterwards. The, the doctors, the uh, the doctors that they prohibit you with one kidney, and obviously your friend Hugh, right? That was his name, Hugh Smith. That they uh, correct, pro- right? That they prohibit y'all from uh, extracurricular uh, beverages, adult beverages, as a result of being down to one <laughs> kidney. No, but you know they encourage uh, uh, quite a bit of moderation, as <laughs> they so. always do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All yeah. right. Um, yeah, and Hugh, um, he's, he was doing great. My wife actually donated herself a few months after I did because she, well, she started the process. It took her almost two and a half years. But she's a living donor as well. She donated April, uh, January 10th of this year. So that, we're both, we're, we both donated. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions I, I forgot to ask you about your wife. Like, I thought maybe you'd lean into your wife and say, hey, babe, hey, keep yours. Because I might need one of yours uh, to put it in the system. But no, she already gave away <laughs> that extra she had up her sleeve. All right. We wish you the best, Mark. Uh, congratulations on this beautiful story. And again, uh, when you can. Here in Texas, we do have an uh, organ donation registry that you guys can use. Look for it online. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate your time. Thank you. This is The Sergio Show. Let's talk about your business again. Joel Patterson is a workplace culture expert. Joel, let's start there again. Introduce you to some folks maybe have never heard you before here on Talk Radio. How is it you help companies day to day as a workplace culture pro? What do you do? Well, we're we're a uh, we're a technology consulting firm, but we're a culture first in the way that we run the business. And you know, we uh, we take pride in in how we treat our employees and being on the best places to work list every year. And um, and so that's kind of that's kind of how I found myself here. Sure. So today's topic for Again, for your office, for your workplace, how many meetings are too many meetings? What type of criteria do you use to determine uh, you guys are meeting too much and not producing enough? What do we say, Joel? Well, I think that it, uh, it's very dependent on the business, but I think we can all agree that any meeting is oftentimes too many meetings. And it's a matter of, of companies stepping back, taking a look at, at whether or not they're really getting value from all the time we spend in the meetings and, and making some changes based on that. The crazy thing, too, is the pandemic has really just made it worse. I saw a Microsoft report the other day that said it's, it, it's actually a 150% increase in the number of meetings since the pandemic. And you'd think that as we're working more solo, we would have fewer, but it's, in reality, it's, it's the opposite. And, and so, like I was saying, everybody really is looking at the numbers. And when you think about the amount of time we spend, uh, so here's, here's a couple of stats for you. There's around 55 million meetings held every single week, 11 million of them uh, per day, uh, over a billion in a year. And you think about the hours tied to that, if you spend 15 to 18 hours a week in a meeting, I mean, there's a lot of dollars tied to that. And we all realize that there's plenty of meetings we shouldn't even be in, could have been resolved with an email or a Slack. And it's important these days as, as companies, you know, whether there's a, re- a recession or a downturn coming, who knows, but we're still looking at, at, at getting more efficient and effective with how we manage expenses, and this is a big part of it. Managers are always trying to find new ways to help employees reclaim their time, productivity time, get more stuff done. Joel Patterson, workplace culture expert, my guest, hoping to help your company make better decisions when 
scheduling meetings, and many times there's too, too many meetings. I, I know people here at, at this little radio cluster spend their entire day in meetings, managers. They, it's like they got nothing done. They didn't put, put it forward anything. It's like they, they leave one meeting with me, and then they go on with the, the promotions crew, then they move on with the management crew, then they move on with the sales crew. That's it. Next day, okay, I hope to move forward. <laughs> I, mo- I hope to move something forward. Sales crew, they will spend an entire day, one day out of a five-day work week, Instead of selling stuff, they'll be doing nothing but reviewing everything, just spending the whole day talk, 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 talk. And I just see wasted opportunities there to close sales and get more done. There's a mindset by some who would say that, and I happen to know a person who believes in this, that a weekly meeting with the chiefs, with the managers, come hell or high water, we are going to meet at this time. You better put it on your calendar, cancel the sales calls, cancel the recordings, cancel whatever it is that you have. Cancel your death. You're going to show up at this one time, and for one full hour, we're going to have a meeting between all the chiefs giving a report of what's on their radar. And before that, we're going to do an icebreaker, little stupid little conversation about, you know, what do you want to be remembered for? Or what's your favorite memory as a kid? Things like that. You know why he does it? He, he does it to... He does it to cement relationships, at least within the top chiefs of all the departments, so that they know each other better. And he believes that that eventually will lead to a more productive company because everybody has a team mindset. What what do you think of his approach? I mean, I I can applaud the effort. I think that you also have to couple that with um, purpose. You've got to be able to make sure everybody comes away from that meeting with something uh, or that will get stale. Uh, I, I'm a believer in, ha- like, my company has daily stand-ups in the morning. We have a 15-minute huddle, and everybody's in a huddle. They're not all in the same one, but it's a way for us to, to connect, um, hear what's going on for everybody during the day, maybe help somebody out. But it's, oh, it's 12 to 15 minutes. That's it. Um, and, and it's a, an instrumental part of our business these days. But it's also quick. It's effective. People are standing up while they do it. And I think those are some of the techniques that people can use. Yeah, you know, the, another thing I can't stand is that every default meeting is an hour long. And <laughs> a lot of times you, you don't need an hour, you need 20 minutes. And yet people feel like they have to fill up that hour, and then it becomes just full of nonsense. So yeah. um, I think, I think it, it, it's, it's an easy trap to fall into. Everybody's been there. And I think that we can all, you know, maybe it's a great party platform for a politician is fewer meetings, we'll get more done. <laughs> yeah, I'd- I'd vote for that, but how are you going to implement it in my workplace? All right, um, any final suggestions for a manager or a business owner and, you know, as far as work meetings on a weekly basis, which I'm sure they're probably on the, listening to the radio right now on their way to attend another one at the moment? Yeah, I, and I'm, I'm the same way. I, I hate meetings. I never feel like I get anything done, except that they are, some of them are definitely mandatory. One interesting concept that I'll share that I've heard uh, about recently is, is the, the no meeting day having one of those per week, like on a Wednesday or something. And, it, you know, it'd be different for a lot of co- companies. But just saying there are no more meetings this day, that's when you, you really dive into your deep work. And I think that's the thing that's, that, that's really getting robbed when you have all these meetings is you don't have the time to really focus on what you're needing to focus on. And, and so, you know, something food for thought. And maybe give that a, hmm. a, a chance at your business and uh, we'll see where it goes. Okay. You force the sit-down and stop production uh, by forcing a meeting at a specific time, okay, how about a, a no-meeting day? Well, you learned something new, and I just did. I'm going to suggest that. A no-meeting day, one day a week for everybody. 
get your stuff done as quickly as possible. That's a good idea. Thank you, Joel. You, be, you take care, brother. We'll call you again. Thank you. Appreciate you. This is The Sergio Show. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. You say you're burned out, but you can't quit. You need the job. You need the health insurance. You need the other benefits, right? I think it's a situation I suspect the majority of the American workforce faces every Monday morning. An expert in this issue, not because he hates his job, but because he examines this. He's author of The the Connector Effect, The Proven Way to Grow Your Business Right Now, Dr. Ivan Meisner. Dr. Ivan, I appreciate your time. How many people Thank go to, you. My pleasure. How many people go to work on a Monday morning and they hate their job? What is it, 60, 70 percent, 80 percent of the American yeah, according, workforce? According to the Gallup, a recent Gallup poll, 76 percent uh, of the workforce uh, sometimes absolutely are, are just quiet quitters. They, they, don't, they don't like their job. That's a big percentage. Wow. Is, this is nothing new, though, right? We're calling it quiet nah, quitting I, now, but, I mean, this has been expressed yeah. uh, through different generations, and it's called, or maybe they never pegged it or put a label on it, but I've known people that just drag their feet all day long and really try to do it the absolute minimum at any time. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's because they're burned out and they're not enjoying what they're doing. And there are a number of ways uh, to address that. Um, one is to learn how to say no to things. Now, you say no to things differently to a boss than you do a peer. So <laughs> let's recognize that from the beginning. So, so let's let's start with start with a peer. Um, a peer is easier, uh, obviously, and and there are a number of ways of saying no to a peer. Um, my favorite one is if I said yes to that, I'm afraid I'd let you down. Hmm, okay. I love that technique. Yeah, I love that technique because you don't even use the word no. You know, and then you tell them why, and then you refer them to someone else. You know, there's somebody here in the company that I think is better qualified for that. They know more about that. Let me make an introduction to them, or do you know who they are? And you refer them over to that. Uh, there are other things that you could do, and we, I talk about this in a book uh, uh, called Who's in Your Room. There are other techniques that you do, uh, like, uh, that's not something I do. I'm not, uh, that, I don't do that. As a matter of fact, just this morning, I had somebody reach out to me and say, you've got to handle this problem. I said, I no longer run the day-to-day operations of the business. You've got to contact this individual. They can give you the time you deserve mm-hmm. to address this issue. I, I and you just put it off to the right person. Um, Now, if you're talking about your boss, it's different. You don't want to say no to the boss. Or (laughs) if I said yes to you, I'd let you down. Don't do that. So here's what you do with your boss. And I learned this years ago um, as a young man. Uh, And later in years, I learned that as a boss, you you hand over stuff to people and you forget how much you give them. But I, I didn't realize that as a young man. And man, I was just overloaded with a bunch of stuff from one particular boss. 
And I decided that I would go to them. And this is before computers. I hand wrote every project he gave to me on a sheet of paper. Okay. And I set an appointment, went into him, and I handed him the sheet of paper. I said, these are all the projects you've given me to do. And his eyes got really big. It's like, <laughs> oh, I didn't realize it was that much. Okay. And I said, I want to make sure and do the job right. So could you prioritize this for me? And I don't need it, you know, one through 25. If you could just give me all the ones, the things that are really, really important, you need done as soon as possible. The twos, the things that can be done, but they can wait a little while. The threes, which whenever you get a chance to do right. these. If you can break it down like that, I can do the job right for you. Okay. And what I loved about that was he took some of the items that were on there and he said, you know, the truth is you're probably not the right person for this anyway, because there's somebody else who's already working on a similar project. Let me give this to that person and this to that person. These are the things I really need you to focus on. And I said, great. And I went back, focused on them, ended up getting two promotions in that company over time. Because rather than saying no or quiet quitting, I asked the boss for direction. He All gave right. it gladly. And I got promoted. Author of Who's in the, Your Room? The question that will change your life. Dr. Ivan Meisner is my guest. That's the subject right now. Employees totally burned out, but you're looking at this, Dr. Meisner, from the employee's perspective, courageous employees who know how to speak to their employer or their supervisor or their boss, but I, don't, I think that would be the minority of workers because most people, they don't want to bother. They're afraid to uh, even bring up the issue that they're overworked, over, they're overburdened, they're, they're just juggling too many things. I think it's probably more incumbent on the manager. If he wants an efficient company, an efficient department, the manager has to find uh, all this. How does that manager go about this? Then? Well, the truth is you can't motivate anyone. I can't motivate you. Only you can motivate you. Now, I can provide an environment where you uh, can find your motivation. I can be inspirational to, to help you find your motivation, but only you can motivate yourself. And so for the people who say, oh, I don't want to talk to the boss, buck up, buttercup. Either live with what you, you, know, either live with what you got uh -huh. or stand up and ask for direction. Ask for help. Ask for you know, some advice. Give me priorities. Uh, it's either that or live the life you're living, which 76% of people say they're quiet quitters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they don't want to have that, that conversation. Dr. Ivan Meisner is my guest. Now, my boss uh, here at the station and stations at the cluster, he's got a policy. He's had it for years. You never say no. Not only to him, you don't say no to any of the team members, whether it's salespeople, tech support, whatever. He says, yeah, well, let's talk about it. I'd like to help you. Tell me more about what you need. So you never say no, but exactly what you were saying, try to redirect to the proper channel or delegate to the proper person whatever needs to be done. Maybe you don't know anything about what they're talking about. and yeah, That way you got to find that person through your manager. Yeah, redirecting works well, especially if you use the technique of saying they can give you the time you deserve to address this issue or they can give you the expertise you deserve to address this issue. That resonates with most people and it works. I know it works. I use it all the time. Used it this morning. Well, if you can't motivate anybody to come out of their shell... We have so many job openings right now, and good people are hard to find. Man, 
Sucks to be a manager at the moment in, in this workforce. All right, Dr. Ivan, appreciate your time. Dr. Ivan Meisner, look for his book, Who's in Your Room? The Question That Will Change Your Life. This is The Sergio Show. your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day and special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, good morning, guys. Well, let's now enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Centers for Disease Control, a writer from Axios, um, showing that gun deaths among U.S. children and teens rose 50% in a couple of years. Okay. Edwin Walker, Texas Ranger, gun law expert. I appreciate your time, Edwin. Centers for Disease Control. Yeah, brother. How does the Centers for Disease Control... uh, Define children as the CDC defines children. What, what ages are is that? Well, they break it down into five-year groups, and so they'll have uh, you know zero to four, four to four to nine, ten to fourteen, and fifteen to nineteen. And so that's kind of their justification for it. But you're right; it completely uh, skews the numbers. Because, as we all know, 18, 19-year-olds, heck, in the state of Texas, even for gun purposes, 17-year-olds are considered to be adults. Yeah. Uh, so uh, those numbers those, those numbers are completely skewed by uh, the CDC. And then, of course, they're adopted by organizations like Pew. Um, you know why they called it the Pew Research Center? Because <laughs> this report stinks. That's why. Um, it's, it's just ridiculous. It's a ridiculous yeah. report in that... Of course, they use the number, they always say the number 50%, or, you know, when any, anytime there's a percentage, a report says that there's a percentage increase, it's because they want to hide the raw numbers. So if you, you know, just for example, let's say something tragic happens five times a year, the next time it uh, happens 10 times a year, and of course they will say there's been a 100% increase, yeah. uh, even though, of course, the actual numbers only mean five more. And that's sort of the numbers here. I believe that the numbers they're looking at go from 1,700, roughly 1,700, to roughly 2,500. And, um, and, and you're right. In your introduction, there are more deaths by accident. Uh, not car just accident. car accidents, yeah. but all accidents. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not including gun accidents. So gun deaths that they're lumping in here include accidents, homicides, and suicides. Uh, so that's, you know, they're lumping them all in together so they can equally, they can demonize the firearm equally in all of those incidences. And the thing about it is, is that, of course, most of the rhetoric you hear is that this is all the fault of those nasty, dirty assault rifles, when by far the uh, firearm of choice used in these are handguns, not rifles of any type. Yeah. And so it's just... It, Careful it with your language. A it's, bunch of, it's assault handguns, by the way. I'm surprised that... Assault handguns. Yeah, that yeah. hasn't well, you know, been added. Well, you know, one of the things that is cleverly hidden 
in all the potential legislation is that uh, not only do they not only does every piece of legislation that wants to ban assault weapons and I'm using my air quotes of course yeah. uh, uh, they talk about rifles but if you look into the definitions that are in every single bill about 50 percent of handguns meet the definition of assault weapon as well yeah Edwin Walker he has a YouTube channel called armed attorneys he's with Walker and Taylor based out of Houston talking about right now with him with a cdc recent report and a write-up in axios and yes, other and, and, uh, yeah go ahead i just wanted to add we're also the uh, primary uh, primary attorneys for uh, texas and u.s law shield excellent so yeah with u.s law shield, US law shield yes um and texas law shield as well um gun deaths up 50 percent among u.s children and teens. Now, the CDC, when they break down, as you said, zero to and the age groups for kids, zero to four, four to nine, ten to fourteen, and then you think that they would stop at seventeen. Let's go fifteen to seventeen. No, they they go in four year increments to fifteen and nineteen, where adults at eighteen, adults at nineteen, and even as you said in Texas, adults at seventeen. To me, when they pile up all the numbers that are accidents and in my opinion, when I see headlines like this, they're just trying to capitalize on they're trying to capitalize on all the headlines with mall shootings and school shootings, all this. Oh, look at that. More children that die. That's the connection I think people are making in their minds. Some people are making their minds. Oh, there's more children dying at schools because of guns oh, yeah. and assault guns and all that. But 17, 18, 19 year old, dude, that's all the gangbangers. The young stupid punks that wind up killing each other. And Houston, yes, Dallas, and, Chicago, and, everywhere. Correct. And also one of the nefarious things that they do with these statistics is that uh, let's say that you have a, you know, a gang of 18-year-olds, another gang of 18-year-olds, they confront each other, they're shootings, or, you know, random acts of gun violence, which we all, we all believe should be you know, prosecuted. Yes. Those are criminal acts, and we're not excusing them in any way. But if they happen to occur near a school, those also go down on the ledger as school shootings. Oof, and so when oof. you see these ridiculously large numbers, like there have been 700 school shootings this year alone, that's because it includes absurd statistics like that. Nearby. All right. Has the CDC always uh, compiled numbers like this in age groups of, of five-year increments, or did they recently start doing that? Do you know, Edward? I, I don't know the history of that, but the CDC, while it is supposed to be a nonpartisan organization, uh, it, 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 like every other branch of government, can succumb to political pressures. That's true, and it doesn't help anyone. When you have 17, 18, and 19-year-olds and young, stupid gangbangers and how they're killing each other, and as you said, yes, committing crime near schools with, with guns, it doesn't help, it doesn't help anything. To be so disingenuous, to, to to be so manipulative with this data, where people with an agenda to take guns away will run with this and fool other individuals who are low information and are easily malleable in society, and then you got more polling data. Oh, majority of Americans want some sort of you know comprehensive or realistic or whatever they, the word of you know, buzzword of the day is, gun control. And that's why you know they will run with information like this because it's it's not properly reported and it's skewed. These are adults, eighteen year old. These are adults. Even a seventeen year old is an adult. That number should not be. You're absolutely correct. Should not be in there. 
Okay, how does uh, U.S. Law Shield and Texas Law Shield work so you can get some more members? How do you work? Well, uh, it's a self-defense uh, legal services organization. So you basically people become members, and that if they're ever involved in a self-defense uh, issue, uh, they get legal representation for no charge other than their membership costs. Then for how much is the membership in Texas? Ten ninety-five a month. That's it. And you get it. That's it. You get an attorney. God forbid something bad happened with a gun, but you got an attorney on standby. I can say I got Absolutely. an attorney. I got an attorney. Eleven bucks a month. That's pretty good. Absolutely correct. All right, remember. Yes, is there any difference between Texas Law Shield and U.S. Law Shield, or are those two groups that you could? It's it's the same. It's the same thing. It's just that we, you know, we, the the company started in Texas, and so it, it tries, you know, for it, okay. for Texas folks, it maintains that Texas identity. Okay, I'll go online and see who's offering. And also, yeah, well, I was going to say I was, oh, yeah. I'm going to go and online also, to see who's who's offering the the best gift with uh, with purchase. Like maybe you got like a sports bag. Okay. Well, the only one you were saying. I'm sorry. I don't. Okay. Get I don't control that. <laughs> okay. You were so, saying, I'm sorry I interrupted uh, you. you. What were you going to say? Oh, no, no. But what I was going to say is uh, you can also check us out uh, daily with uh, with with uh, discussing uh, guns and self-defense stories at uh, on the YouTube at Armed Attorneys. Excellent. Thank you, Edwin. Be safe, my brother. We'll call you again. With Texas Law Shield and the YouTube channel, Armed Attorneys. Armed Attorneys. Check it out. That's Edwin Walker, Texas Ranger. This is the Sergio Show. With hush money and Donald Trump and all these headlines, the situation that he is in, well, was in some time back, how does that apply to the workforce today? Now, I understand there's a new law that prevents companies from silencing former employees about their job experience. Back in February, the U.S. National Labor Relations Board announced that most companies could no longer ban workers from publicly sharing negative remarks about their former employment site. Employment attorney Andy Trusevich joining me right now. What more can you tell me about this um, this new n- Labor Relations Board decision to open up these comments again for former employees? Sure. So the NLRB, um, the National Labor Relations Board, which uh, enforces the National Labor Relations Act, proposed this rule in a split decision. And it reversed a decision in 2020, um, which different politics, uh, one board member drops off every year and then gets reappointed by the, whoever's the president, confirmed by the Senate. So the political pendulum tends to swing. And so in 2020, the NLRB ruled that severance agreement, confidentiality, non-disparagement were legal. Then this board comes in and says they're non-legal. The reason I am against this rule is the NLRB is conflating or trying to confuse the, the, the public by saying hush money, which is the allegation with Donald Trump, mm-hmm. um, you know, sexual harassment. I, we don't want you telling anybody about what, what this bad executive does. That's hush money. What this rule does, it applies to severance agreements, and what they aren't telling the, the public is it only applies to people below a manager level. Manager and supervisors, very limited circumstances. But above that, it does not apply to the C-suite executives. They're going to get their severance agreements. And if companies, if, if this rule stands and you work for a non-unionized company, severance agreements aren't guaranteed anywhere in the United States unless you work for a unionized company. And so what will happen is if the board says, the board of directors and CEO says, 
if you're going to go out there and badmouth me anyways on social media, tarnish our brand, um, and talk about how much we're going to give, give you, we're just going to do away with severance agreements. Okay. And it only applies to the average American worker living paycheck to paycheck trying to pay a mortgage, especially in this economy. That's why I'm against this rule. I'm for the ban on non-competes. But I'm against I'm against this rule because it hurts the average okay. worker. Well, understood. Employment attorney Andy Trusevich, my guest. Well, if if it's good for the goose, how about the gander? How about reverse it? Then you know how companies they won't comment on the performance of previous employees. Some company looking for references, looking for you. You know, this person has applied with me. So how was he uh, when he was with you? And they normally don't comment. They don't comment at all. Well, maybe they should now. Don't you think if it's good for the goose and gander? Well, no, and here's the reason: because then they could possibly get sued for defamation. The 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 mm-hmm. answer there is there's definitely a remedy. If someone wants, let's say they do enter into a hush hush settlement agreement because he or she was sexually harassed or discriminated against, they they can still go file even under when you sign a, a settlement agreement. You can still go file with the EEOC, and the EEOC has subpoena power. So it can come back and say, how many complaints have you received against this employer? Or how many sexual harassment complaints have you received in the last year? And so they can, if you go to the EEOC, even if you sign a hush settlement agreement or severance agreement with a confidentiality, you can still go to the NLRB, you can still go to the EEOC, but the problem is I'm worried that companies will do away with severance agreements and it doesn't affect the people at the top. You know, one banker CEO got what eighty-six million dollars last huh. year. Huh. If he gets fired, he'll get about two hundred million. And so it doesn't affect him. It it affects the average worker, yeah. and that's the reason I'm against it. Well, speaking of average worker, how about an update on efforts to change the no compete, not compete clause, where you got to go out of market, go get another job in the same industry? Uh, what's the What's the update on that? I know that conversation was rolling up in D.C. Um, so the uh, FTC extended the deadline, but it ends on April 19th. And um, again, if anybody is against non-competes, it affects 30 million workers, um, one in five workers. It, uh, FTC's own statistics show it, it uh, non-competes suppress wages by $300 billion dollars. If anyone is against it, please go to ftc.gov. They make it real easy to put in a quick sentence on whether you support the ban or not, and I hope it passes. But they're going to close public comment on April 19th. Then they will do their recommendation to the White House. The White House counsel will review it. It will go back to the FTC. The rule will come out. And then the the Chamber of Commerce, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, has already said they're going to sue, of course, and I... You know, so they're going to sue, and okay. once the ban comes in, let the appeals process begin. What does it say to you that they extend the deadline to provide some comment? Does that mean not enough people said anything about this? People don't know about it? Um, they're hearing from one side. They're hearing from big businesses saying that the sky will fall if you allow, if you ban non-competes, and the sky will not fall. Non-competes have nothing to do with business other than handcuffing current employees to their current employers where they can't go get a better job across the street with a competitor. And that's just anti-American, anti-competition. And I blame both Republicans and Democrats for not fixing this issue. Andy, thanks for the update. Be safe, brother. Thank you so much. Employment attorney Andy Trusevich. This is The Sergio Show.
Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. And we mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news. On News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have an active shooter, multiple gunshots. In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. I'm focusing again on one of my favorite topics, coffee. Nurse practitioner Christine Callender, she's with Pure Health Texas. She's the founder. So, Christine, when... And if my heart were to skip a beat when I'm sipping my black coffee, my pure black um, espresso coffee in the morning, does that mean that I'm in love with coffee or is that something that's wrong with my heart that I'm getting too, ca- too much caffeine in me? What's, what's going on? Well, if it's your first cup of coffee, I'll probably say that you're just in love with it. <laughs> Based on this most recent research that we're seeing, um, limited caffeine consumption does not look like it has any ill effects on the frequency that your heart might have a funny beat or that flutter in your chest. All right. So define limited then for a standard size American male or female. Well, standard size American male, if it's one cup of coffee brewed at home or the office, because, you know, we have one cup at home and then we have our second cup at the office in the morning, then you're fine. But that's like an eight to 16 ounce cup of coffee in the morning. So you're probably limited to about 200 milligrams of caffeine in that cup of coffee. Okay. For most people, they say stay under 400 milligrams of caffeine on a daily basis, and that's from all of your caffeine consumption, not just your coffee consumption. So if you also have a Dr. Pepper addiction, because we all, you know, know that Dr. Pepper is the beverage of Texas, then, you know, you might end up with a little bit more caffeine than what was intended. Or even worse, some people, for I don't know why, but some people like the taste of Mountain Dew, and that has twice twice the caffeine jolt of a regular cola. I think Big Red also has twice the caffeine. So you, you got to watch your caffeine. It's, it's all over the place. It's, it's in candy and gum. It is all gum. over the place. Yeah. So you, yeah. I mean, I'm a diehard, like, dark chocolate lover, and so I have to balance, like, am I going to have a piece of dark chocolate or is that going to send me over for my limit? So the study was actually conducted in a very unique way using, like, cool and up-to-date technology. So most of the participants were like medically wearable devices to kind of help track their heart rate and their blood sugar and to look for those skipped beats. And they would receive text messages basically telling them like, hey, you need to drink caffeine right now or no, you're not allowed any caffeine today. So the the study was actually conducted in a very unique and and up-to-date manner, which I thought was really just cool because sometimes medicine and our studies can be really mundane and kind of boring. Um, But this one looked at things in a little bit different manner. And so I I think it has a lot of validity to kind of our everyday lives. Nurse practitioner, founder of Pure Health Texas, Christine Kellner, we're talking about coffee, specifically caffeine. Just in, in layman's explanation terms, how does caffeine affect the body? What does it do? Is it a kickstart, jumpstart to the nervous system, to the brain? Uh, what does it do once it gets inside of you, caffeine? So caffeine really affects a lot of 
our insides. So when we initially drink caffeine, it is a stress response for the body. So your adrenal glands, which is a little, little guy that sits on top of your kidneys, it's going to start releasing some stress hormones. And those stress hormones then raise your pulse rate and raise your blood pressure. But it all caffeine also stimulates the nervous system. So a lot of people feel more alert, more awake when they drink some sort of caffeinated beverage. And so, you know, I love to start my day with either a hot cup of tea or a hot cup of coffee. And they've shown that like that routine in the morning can actually boost mood for people. Uh-huh. So it's not even that it just affects one aspect of us. It affects lots of aspects of us when it comes to nervous system and like our mental health and mood and then also physiologically like our our heart rate and our blood pressure and everything along those lines too so cardiovascularly it can be a stress neurologically it can be a stimulant which can be good and bad and some people it, produ- it produces more anxiety than just an alert response and so it all of us metabolize caffeine differently so it has to be taken with a grain of salt you know, you could have a cup of coffee and be fine, and I could drink the same cup, cup of coffee and end up with the jitters and <laughs> end up really anxious. Wimps. Depends on how you brew it. Yeah. You know, seriously, I can't tell the difference in, in how my body responds in the morning. I can't tell the difference between a long, wonderful hot shower or getting a cup of coffee to give me a jolt. It, it's like I, I, I just, I just wake up. I, I don't. I don't think caffeine affects me in any way. What does that say about me? Well, it means that you've either adapted to the amount of caffeine that you're consuming, and so you're not having as strong of a physiologic response to it, or that you might just be a fast caffeine metabolizer. So our genomics or the little pieces of our DNA that differ between person and person can also, they, it controls how we metabolize the caffeine. So how long that caffeine affects us, how quickly it affects us. We're like a slower caffeine metabolizer might not have like that instant jolt, but you kind of have a long sustained energy versus somebody that metabolizes it really fast might get a jolt and feel very alert, but then have a crash a few hours later. Right. I'm, I'm looking at my black rifle coffee company bag. And also I have a, another bag on the side from Starbucks. They're both espresso, espresso roast, and it doesn't say anything about the amount per cup as far as uh, milligrams of caffeine. So in a standard size cup, which we all know, you know, type of cup that you get either at, you know, at the breakfast place, IHOP or Denny's or around here, you know, country omelet, the the cup is a standard size. How much is in in that one cup of strong coffee in the morning? One one cup of strongly brewed coffee, so we're talking like eight ounces, because uh-huh. that's really what like a mug of coffee would hold, has about 100 to 120 milligrams of caffeine in it. Okay. But most of us aren't drinking an eight ounce cup of coffee in the morning. I think my cup of coffee in the morning holds like 16 ounces. So, you know, we have to take that part into consideration, too, when, talk, when we talk about our caffeine and coffee consumption. Yeah, I'm trying to gauge how much my big Star Trek mug holds i think it has 816 it's a pretty sturdy mug you're probably yeah. looking at 32 at least two yeah. quote cups worth of yeah. coffee and uh, if it's 32 ounces like you've hit your your quota for the day yeah the thing that. is i don't fill it to the top i i, I fill up like one fourth uh, at the bottom pretty, pretty strong coffee and then i sip like two or three of these and that's it i'm done for the day and uh yeah it just for me it just tastes good i i don't think i get any 
any benefit out of it. But at least I'm not falling asleep in the middle of a newscast. Like most of my audience right now probably falling asleep because I'm talking again. Yeah. Thank you, Christine. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Christine Callender with Pure Health Texas. This is the Sergio Show.